Good morning, True North. It is so good to be with you in person in the flesh. I'm, I'm excited for us, and I'm sad for our main church because we still can't meet together as a large group. But this is good, and it's good for a lot of reasons, uh, not the least of which that this is the last Sunday that I will get to see our Compass, excuse me, class of 2020 seniors. That's a bittersweet moment. It is, as life goes, you're supposed to move on, grow up, and get married and all those things. So I, I really think that this sermon is going to be a help to you. But even if you're not class of 2020, this is still for you. I thought about all of you as I wrote this, but specifically and especially our seniors. So with that said, let me just make one confession. And I don't want you to hold this against me. This is just between us, okay? I don't like graduations. <laughs> and it's not for the reasons that maybe, okay, I, I obviously I like to see you guys walk and get honored and what color you're wearing and all that and to see how awesome you've done in school. It's not that. Obviously, we all care about that. But it's the, it's the whole process around it. You have to join everyone in this massive arena with people, and you're sitting closely. And then you have to show up super early if they have general seating. And then you have to stay there for hours waiting in the hot sun as, as you guys are preparing to get there. And then you wait for hours longer until uh, they get to the actual part that you care about, which is the person, right? Up until that point, you have to see a lot. You have to hear people talk. The president, the, vice, or the, the principal, vice principal, the corner bakery guy, you know, the, the valedictorian. Everybody gets a chance to talk at these things. I'm like, why can't I get a mic at least? Give the youth pastor a mic. I'd like to go up there and say some stuff. But anyway, I don't like that part as much. What I do like is getting a chance to see people that I love and care about, take pictures with you. Uh, but the rest of the, the, the graduation experience, you can just throw away. My graduation experience wasn't too different than yours. Uh, you know, that is me from back in, I won't tell you how long ago, but that was a long time ago. Uh, and on my, let's see, that'd be my right. On my right, that's my youth pastor. Her name is Sandy Jo Leonard. Why are you laughing, V? Wow. My youth pastor is Sandy Jo Leonard. She left an indelible mark on my life. Uh, there's so much about who I am today that stems in large part from my youth pastor. Uh, she had a tremendous impact. I mean, of course, I'm using the word she because that's what she is. She's a, she's a female. Uh, and obviously, we don't subscribe to that kind of theology today. But back in that time, that's, that's what I knew. That's what I was growing up in. And she left a mark on my life that continues to resonate until this day. Um, and in fact, that's one of the reasons why I thought it was appropriate to talk about this, because as, as you guys prepare to leave and disembark, uh, or to have one more year of True North, uh, whatever the, the season of life is, there's going to be people in your life that leave an impression upon you that will ripple until eternity. Uh, the kind of person that's like, man, that person really changed who I am and set me on a trajectory that I never would have gone on had it not been for their lives. And there's a, there's a sense in which Paul's doing the same thing right now. He is taking a group photo, as, as we said, or the group photo is saying, hey, here's all the people that I'm with, Luke and uh, Archippus and, uh, I mean, uh, Apaphia, no, Apaphia. Forget her name. Uh, Nympha. I mean, all these people, they saying, look at who I'm with. And then he sends it to Colossae. Well, these people are the kind of people that had an influence on Paul and in Paul's ministry. He was not an island. These people had an effect on him. And all this to say that as we read these last few verses in Colossians together, I want you to see that there are no such thing as random names. These are real people who came from a real place in time, who had a real impact on uh, the church history, had an impact on Paul. 
Paul could not do what he did without these people around him. And so what we're going to do is we're going to finish off similarly to how we started this, this series. We're going to look at some of these names and say, what can be learned from them? What kind of lessons can we draw from these people? And I have to tell you, I got five points again. So you're going to have to write really fast and, and buckle your seatbelts because we have a lot of ground to cover that I think are all very helpful, especially if you're leaving, but also if you're staying. So, real people from real history. In fact, you might not know this, but here's where Colossae is located. You don't know if you could see on the map here, but Colossae is straight up north there. Uh, and if you look, it's surrounded by the cities that are mentioned. Hierapolis uh, is one of them, the closer cities to them, and where they had churches as well. But if you go to the Colossae today, which you still can't do, you'll notice it's still around. Colossae still exists. Now, it's ruins. It's not, a, you know, it's not a thriving city anymore, but this is a real place. Real people, real history. That's the Bible. Now, let's begin with these first two verses here. There's a person that you're going to, you might remember from chapter one. His name is Epaphras. He's likely the pastor of Colossae who came to Paul and said, hey, we're having trouble in Colossae. These people are teaching false doctrine. How do we respond? Well, Paul is now commending Epaphras because of who he is as a pastor and what he does as a pastor. Note, note this along with me. Epaphras, who is one of you, is a Colossian, a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. He says hi to you. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul says, I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So you have the testimony of Paul about this man who's the pastor. And he says, man, this guy's a prayer beast. The guy goes and he's praying and he's, he's not just like, oh, I guess if you bless Colossae and Laodicea, that'd be nice, Lord. No, he is always struggling. That word is, is agonizomai. He is agonizing, you might hear the word that we use today. He's agonizing in his prayers for these people. Uh, now, obviously, you know, we should be taking our cues from Epaphras and saying, man, I ought to stop thinking that prayer is something small. Epaphras saw this as something large. He wouldn't spend his energy and his time doing something that made no difference. Epaphras knew that prayer was something valuable. So point number one, stop devaluing the power of prayer. In today's day and age, something akin to prayer is very popular. It's called meditation. You've probably been introduced to this in your classrooms at some point in time. In fact, I saw that one of my sons was learning this. Uh, meditation. He was being taught meditation. They didn't call it that. Uh, but transcendental meditation, emptying your mind, focusing on your breathing, calming your, you know, your spirit or whatever. Uh, this is something that comes from uh, Eastern religions, specifically Hinduism. Uh, Buddhism adopted it and now incorporates it into their teaching as well. And, and, and meditation is meant to be something how, how prayer works works, except that they recognize that meditation and prayer are fundamentally different because prayer directs itself upward, whereas meditation directs itself inward to the point where they'd be able to say, well, uh, meditation is where the person is working to transform themselves. Uh, we see ourselves transformed into the image of Christ as we pray, uh, but that prayer is connected to Christ, whereas meditation is meant to say, I'm going to look inside of me and expect transformation. And in fact, uh, today there's proponents all over the place, in the health profession especially, that say, here's why you should meditate. You know, you'll lower your heart rates, you'll, be, you'll, you'll think more clearly, you'll have superhuman powers of focus, and you'll be able to lift people up with, a, you know, one hand, all these different, uh, all these different benefits. But I, I wonder, I, mean, I, I bet that's helpful uh, because a lot of people are saying, yeah, I, I want to focus better. I want to learn how to have less stress. But here's the thing. Scripture gives you replete reasons why you should be a man or woman of prayer. Here are some of them. 
Here are some of them. First of all, uh, when you pray, it increases spiritual maturity. It's like taking your supplements or your, your vegetables. Your mom told you, eat your vegetables, it's good for you. Uh, eat your steak, it's good for you. It grows you, it helps you. Uh, prayer is fundamental to your spiritual maturity. That's why uh, Paul says here, Epaphras, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature. Epaphras uh, is praying that they may stand mature. And the, the fact is, your prayer is inextricably linked to your spiritual growth. Prayer is inextricably linked to your spiritual growth. That is, you cannot grow in your Christian life apart from a thriving Christian prayer life. They go together. Uh, one person said that prayer is like breathing for the Christian. You don't do that, you die. Prayer is uh, akin to breathing for us in that it oxygenates our entire spiritual system. Epaphras saw this. He recognized that prayer is what would give us the kind of strength and maturity that God promises in his word. Again, the word here uh, is, is uh, to stand mature is, uh, well, I don't know if I told you this yet, teleos. Uh, Epaphras prays that they may stand mature. That word mature is teleos. It can mean complete or perfect. Paul uses this word in Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. He says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone, here's the word, teleos, mature in Christ. The whole idea behind this is that prayer issues and facilitates great spiritual maturity. How's your prayer life? Young person, here's the mistake that a lot of young people make, especially as they leave high school. I don't have parents to oversee me anymore. I'm in my own dorm room. I don't have anyone who's telling me what to do. My youth pastor doesn't care about me anymore. He doesn't talk to me anymore. And so now you stop doing things that you ordinarily would do when the accountability was in place. And one of the first things to go is your prayer life. You will learn not to pray because it is too, uh, too costly. And therefore, that's the first step to spiritual drift. You start moving further and further away from the center that you used to govern your life with because prayer is easy to dismiss. You would be a fool to do that. If you want to increase your spiritual maturity and realize that there is power in prayer, you would do well to keep prayer at the center of your Christian experience. There is no such thing as a Christian life apart from prayer, you understand. When you do this, it influences every other part of your life. Unlike meditation, which has supposed benefits, and I, I believe some of them are probably right. The Christian prayer life is fundamentally different and yet still possesses so many of the same benefits. Do you think it would lower your stress to lay your burden to the feet of Christ who knows all things? Do you think you would feel more calm and centered if you spent time dwelling upon God's word and giving him your heart, your soul, your future? Do you think that there would not be abundant physical, spiritual, emotional benefits that would come if you gave yourself seriously to struggling prayer? I think the answer is obvious. Furthermore, it increases your confidence in God's word. One of the things that Paphras is praying for, if you're looking at your Bible in verse 12, it says he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and, and fully assured in all the will of God. Fully assured in all the will of God. As we pray, what we're doing is engaging in a spiritual battle that allows our hearts to engage with the spiritual word of God so that we would be assured of it, not doubting it, not thinking about God's word and saying, wow, that doesn't sound right. I don't like that. You see, every time you open up your Bible, it's, it's like all of hell's forces, including your own flesh, work against you to believe it because the moment you believe it and act upon that, the moment you become dangerous, you become dangerous to the kingdom of the enemy. 
And so everything works against you. You think about your food. You think about all the distractions of your day. Yeah, I finished that homework project. Or, man, I really want to go to the beach. Or whatever it is that your mind would ordinarily drift to, that happens in prayer. But if you want to see yourself be confident in God's word, engaging in prayer is what's going to unlock the key to your heart so that you're able to truly understand and ingest God's word fully. Some people will read the Bible from kindergarten at Compass all the way through graduating, you know, leaving the bridge. They'll read the Bible, the same words that you read, and have a no change in their life. <laughs> have no change because there is no spiritual activity happening between that word and their heart because prayer, which helps unlock and foster that mentality, isn't happening. There's no real relationship there, and so there's no real change. You can read the Bible, be a master at it, have a degree in it, and still not have the kind of ex experience because prayer is what is facilitating that. And that's why Epaphras is praying. He's a good pastor. He's saying, God, when they read their Bibles, I want them to be confident about what it says. I don't want them to doubt it. I want them to trust it. Better pray like Epaphras then. Pray like Epaphras. When? You should always be praying. There's never a bad time to pray. How should you be praying? Struggling. Agonizomai. Uh, agonizing in your prayer, disciplined, focused, intentional, intense. There is a type of prayer that is not meant for the drive from, from home to school. There's a type of prayer that's reserved only for your bedroom or in your closet within your bedroom, if you want to go that far, closing the door and saying, God, I'm here to do business with you. That's the kind of prayer that Paphras engaged in. What kind of, uh, who, who should it be for? Well, it's on your behalf. It's for others. I mean, it's also for you. You should be praying for yourself first, I think, in all of your prayers as you go to God every day. But like a, like a radiating or a ripple effect, as you pray for yourself, it ripples effect to everyone else who's close to you. You start praying for your parents and your siblings and your teachers and your, uh, your friends at school, your church, uh, your church mates, all these people in your life, the ripple effect of prayer and concentric circles. You're praying for broader and broader circles of friends and neighbors and loved ones. Uh, you pray for all these people. And here's the thing. The kind of prayers that you pray for them are not just the simpleton prayers about, hey, God, please bless my Aunt Sally's hamster who's sick. He's, he's probably going to die. I mean, sure, pray for Aunt Sally's hamster, but never forget that the ultimate reason for, the, for your existence is not to have a happy hamster. The reason for your existence is to stand mature in Christ, to be fully mature in him. Pray for the stated goals God has for you. Pray like Epaphras. Paul highlights Epaphras, and then he transitions from Epaphras to two other names. One of them you'll for sure recognize. The other one you may recognize for other reasons. Take a look at verse 14 with me. It's a short one, and I'll put it on the screen for you. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. And this is, of course, the Luke that you know. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. This is the same guy. So this is the one that we're, we're familiar with. And this is how we know he's a physician. Paul tells us this in verse 14 in Colossians 4. And then he highlights another name. Um, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, and then without any commendation or any fluff around him, it says, as does Demas. Now, I could be reading too much into that, but here's the thing. Three or four years later, Paul would write another letter. This would be the last letter that Paul would write. And he writes it to his child in the faith, Timothy. And here's what he has to say. He says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. Demas was one of the inner circle of Paul's traveling band, and yet even though he was around this great theologian, this incredible man of God, he still chose to desert Paul in order to go and chase after physical pleasures, lust of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life, 
and the love of possessions, lust of the flesh, all of these things working together. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. But, oh, it gone. <laughs> Can we put it back? Oh, there it is. Okay, thank you. <sighs> Demas, I can't help but think about the people that I've come across in my years as a high school pastor and high school director at one point in time and seeing a lot of people, faces just like yours, ambitions and dreams just like yours who have come and have left, who have signed up to be Christians, raised their hand at the camp, you know, walked the aisle, threw the pine cone in the fire, uh, you know, went to revival and had the emotional experience, uh, even bore their testimony to all the listening ears and only to have their testimony trashed years later as they walk away from the faith. I don't mean to be downer, but you ought to, be, you ought to not be nonchalant about apostasy. Apostasy is the, the leaving, the denial of your faith. You ought to not be casual about that for yourself and for others. There ought not to be a sense of comfort in you about, man, well, hey, because I'm a Christian, that means I'm once saved, always saved, and that means I'm good to go no matter what. I think the first part I can agree with, I'm good to go, then no matter what, is there's a lot, of, a lot of things in there that we should say. So I thought about a couple things that you should really understand about this. First of all, if you're not going to lose your faith, you ought to realize that you ought to fight for your faith. You must fight for it. Faith is not something that can simply be deposited and not done anything with. But much like a seed planted into a garden, the, the, the gardener is the one who's tilling the soil. He's watering. He's putting manure on. He's providing the context for that faith to grow or that seed to grow. It's the same for you and me. When God gives us faith to believe, it is only the beginning of the rest of our lives. I love this from the Apostle Paul. He writes in that same book with the one that talks about Demas. Here's what he says, and I think it's important for you to read this because you get the sense of how uh, our faith works. Look at this verse, and this is verses 12 and 14 in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able, so get this, he's the one acting, God is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So notice here, Paul is expressing his confidence. God is able to do the guarding. God is the one who's going to keep me a Christian until I die. He's, gonna, he's entrusted me with the gospel. He's given me his spirit. God is going to make sure that I end well. However, notice what he says to Timothy. Pay close attention to what he says to Timothy. Verse 14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Wait a minute, Paul. You just said, that God was going to guard those things, right? Didn't you just say that in verse 13? God is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And yet, then he says in verse 14, but by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, you guard the good deposit entrusted to you. What's going on? What's going on? This is Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Work out, work in. I am being guarded, you do the guarding. But notice here that Paul qualifies it by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who's going to keep you in the faith. But how does he do that? It is by the means of our being protective, guarding. We're guarding our faith. We, we know that we're entrusted with the gospel. We know that God has deposited the Holy Spirit within us. And so that means man, I'm praying, I'm reading, I, I, I'm studying God's word, I'm staying around Christians because as I engage in these things, God is using those as protective elements to keep me from stumbling, to keep me from leaving the church, to keep me from denying the faith. Guys, I, I feel, I need to say this, I am just as susceptible to sin as any one of us here. We're all susceptible to sin. We're all susceptible to be dragged away by the lust of our flesh and a whole host of other reasons. The thing that's different 
is that we start saying to ourselves, it does not matter what I feel, I'm going to church. I'm reading my Bible. I'm clinging to Christ because he is my protective savior. It's the umbrella analogy, right? Repentance and faith brings us underneath the protective covering of Christ. But if I say, I don't want to be protected and covered anymore. I don't want to be repentant and trusting in Christ anymore. What happens? I'm no longer under the umbrella, and thus I'm now more susceptible to be dragged away. But Pastor Rob, what about the perseverance of the saints? Look, God perseveres us through the means that he's given us. God protects us by means. And it's a paradox. God guards us. We're being guarded through the Holy Spirit. God entrusts to us, and he expects us to protect that entrusted deposit. Man, if you could understand this, it would give you a healthy and balanced view of how sanctification works. You've got to fight for your faith. And you also ought to know what's in your Bible and why you believe it. One of the most attacked things right now is, this, is the Christian scriptures. You can debunk everything we teach and know and believe if you can just simply make people doubt what the, what the scripture says. Second Peter chapter 1, he says, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter highlights his experience on the mountain, the transfiguration of Jesus. And he says, hey, we heard the voice from heaven. We saw Jesus being uh, arrayed in splendor. We saw a glimpse of the glory of Christ. And then he says, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, this was amazing, but this word of God, man, that's more fully confirmed. My senses may lie to me. God's word will not. Know why you believe the Bible. Know why you trust it. I heard recently that there was a guy who uh, toured as a Christian band, and he recently came out as being an unbeliever. How many times does this happen? I mean, how many times will this happen before this is all said and done? Another guy who came out on video and is doing interviews now, like, I was a Christian, but I'm not anymore. And the reason why is because my church couldn't answer my difficult questions. You know, why is there evil? Why, why does God seem to have, there seems to be contradictions as I read the word of God. And, you know, I, there's Christians are hypocrites. I mean, just all the stuff that you hear all the time. And I think to myself, where was your youth pastor? Where was your leader? Where were your parents? And why did you not say anything before you went on tour? Or even during the tour, say something. It's not like the Christian faith is absent or devoid of any kind of intellectual gravitas. The Christian faith is robust, deep, real, rich. If you would just but say what's on your mind, don't be afraid. Ah, sorry about that. Don't be afraid. There we go. Of asking hard questions. Don't be afraid to say what's there. Because here's the thing. Christians can grapple with this. We have 2,000 years of Christian history where people have asked questions that you've asked long, I mean, they've asked long before you ever came on the scene. God and evil, God and genocide, God and homosexuality, God and whatever, fill in the blank. If you have difficulties with that, there are answers. Now, for some of you, it's never going to be about intellectual, it's never going to be an intellectual battle. For you, it's going to be just like Demas. You love the world. You love sin. You want to indulge in your sinful life. And let me ask you just one question. Do you think that's going to be worth it? Will you think really that will be worth it? At the end of your life, and you face the God of the Bible because you know he's true, is that really going to be worth it to love your sin so much that you love your sin all the way to hell? Of course not. You're going to hate yourself for that. You'll know. I had a chance. I denied it. I chose sin instead. I chose to love my flesh. Young person, please don't do that. Don't be afraid of asking hard questions. Lean into them, but ask them sincerely and love the word of the God. Love the God of the word. 
Man, so much more I could say about that, but we got to keep going here. I want to take you to the next few verses where Paul is also sending greetings to these churches in the, in the surrounding area. And amidst his greetings, he mentions one gal that I think you ought to pay attention to. Take a look here. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and specifically to Nympha and the church in her house. That's a gal. That's one person. Verse 16, and when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And so he says, greet Laodicea. And by the way, give my shout out to, to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. This is unusual for two reasons. One, uh, if someone had a, a large estate, a, a large property, it's going to be a guy. It's unusual for it to be a woman. But the second reason it's unusual is that it means that not only was it a woman who owned this place, but that it was a woman of great means. The woman had a house large enough to host a church. And back in these days, when you were hosting a church, it meant that you had a large enough house to, to support a lot of people. Church was growing at this point in time. And so what you see from Nympha, it, we don't know anything else about her, except the fact that she was gracious. She was hospitable with the home that God blessed her with. Whatever your means are, use them to be generous to the church. When you go from here, young person, and you go to your college or uh, your dorm or wherever it is that you go, if you go back home and you stay in your bedroom and you're going to Saddleback, whatever it is that you do, Whatever it is that you do, and I'm not throwing shade, hear me out. Whatever it is that you do, be generous to your church. If you're a Christian, this is not, oh, if you're an adult and you have money, now give. No, it's whoever you are as a Christian, you are called to be generous to your church. You might think, well, Pastor Broad, I'm broke. <laughs> I get that. Who's this guy? It's not Pastor Mike. <laughs> it's not Jesus. I heard someone. <laughs> no. Warren Buffett's one of the richest men in the world, and he has a net worth just a hair above mine, $71.5 billion. If you had just one of those $71 billion, you could buy fighter jets, you could buy NFL teams, you could buy this uh, Tibetan uh, Mastiff, which costs $2 million. You could buy Buckingham Palace. You could buy a number of things. If you were Warren Buffett and you had just one of those billions of dollars, Warren Buffett is also known not just for being incredibly rich, but also for being a philanthropist. He gives a substantial amount of money. Now imagine this. What if Warren Buffett got saved? He became a radical Christian who loved the Word of God, loved churches. Now Warren Buffett's shoveling billions of dollars into the church. I, I, don't, don't, I can get in trouble for this. I would love for you to be super wealthy so that you can funnel your super wealth into the organization that matters most, and it's not yours. <laughs> not Ber uh, Berkshire Hathaway. It's not Target. It's not Apple. It's not your name on a billboard. Christ. Christ. We'd love to see Christ uh, highlighted. If we gave billions of dollars to missions and church building, what a different world I think we would live in. Be generous doesn't mean you wait until you have a ton of money. It means to be uh, ready to give and be generous even now. To be generous even now while you're still broke. How do you do that? Well, when you do get money, do you give? Are you generous in your spirit with your time, with your service? Are you generous already? Are you practicing that? Jesus said this in Luke chapter 16. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. How are you doing with being faithful in the very little young person? When you go to college and you have a paycheck and it's not in mom or dad's bank account and you can do it all by yourself, you get to choose what you do with your money. And Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. You'll either love one and hate the other. Love God with your money. Submit to God with your money. Don't let anything draw you away from a sincere love of Christ. And I want you to also see the relationship between a strong church and a strong Christian life. 
Let me just name a couple things that Compass does. Short-term missions. Uh, Compass Bible Institute. Counseling for free. There are churches that charge a lot of money for counseling. Video content. Missionaries. Church planting. Curriculum. Full-time pastors over different ministries. Full-time administrators over different ministries. Full-time directors over different ministries. Printing content. And on and on and on it goes. You make that possible because of your giving. And if you want to live in a place that has a strong church, young person, be ready to give of yourself. If God makes you a lawyer or a molecular geneticist or an engineer or a rocket surgeon or whatever God makes you, be sure that you're being super generous with the money God puts in your pocket. You will benefit from that. Also, never forget either that there's really no sacrifice in your life. You're simply trading treasures. If you... (laughs) My daughter gives me a super cute thing that she drew or... Uh, you know, my sons made me a card this morning. You know, they wrote their names and everything. Um, they may give me this, it's between us, okay? Are they here? They may give me a pitiful card, right? You know, it's scratched together. It's, you know, they may give me a pitiful card, but in my heart, when I receive that, I'm like, oh, that's awesome. I appreciate that. And then w- when I get a chance to bless them, I have, I have real means. I can bless them with real treasures. Right? I can give them, you know, whatever, In-N-Out Burger. Or we could do, we could, I could give them, a, you know, Jacob just got a bass guitar for his birthday. I mean, we're, we want to bless our kids. I think that's an easy trade. Let me give dad a pitiful card, and he gives me a bass guitar. It's, it's, a, it's an easy idea. And if that's true on a human level, how much more true is that on a heavenly level? When you give treasures to God, you're not, you're not downgrading. You're simply trading treasures. You're trading up. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where nothing can affect it. It is safe. It is secure. And God will reward you richly on that day. Paul sends a shout out to a guy by the name of Archippus. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. That's kind of terrifying. Out of all the things that Paul could do, he calls out a dude. See that you fulfill your, your, your calling. See that you fulfill your ministry. It's like Coach Paul is saying, don't give up, man. Come on, run. Don't be lazy. What are you doing? I don't know. I'm, I'm reading into that, obviously. But here's, here's the thing I think that means for you. Point number four, don't let blank rob you of a fruitful life. Blank. I want you, by the end of this point, to fill in your own point number four. Whatever is closest to your life that would rob you of being fruitful, that's the thing I want you to put in there. I have three things that I think are, are the closest. When I do counseling, these are some of the recurring themes. You ready? It's going to go pretty quick here. Three, of, three common thieves of fruitfulness. Feelings, busyness, and exhaustion. Those are the three things I'm going to give you. Three things to think about. First one, feelings. Um, come in because I'm bored. I'm tired. I'm lazy. Uh, Your feelings are dictating whether or not you do the things that you're called to do. If you call in sick because you don't feel like it, if if you skip your Bible because you're just too tired, those are the kind of things that end up stealing, robbing fruitfulness from your life. Why? Well, because when you're giving yourself over to your feelings, your feelings are fickle. Up one day, down the next. Up one day, down the next. You're inconsistent. And therefore, the result of that is obvious. You never make any progress busyness. You're so busy with all the good things that you never give time to the best things. And when you do give time to the best things, it's half-hearted. You're tired. You don't have a lot of time to give to it. You're running around from cheer camp and, you know, football practice and theater that you never give time to the thing that matters most. And certainly when you do give it time, it's like at 1130 at night when you've done your homework, you've done everything for the day, you're, you're just like just dead tired and you're just trying to like focus on those few words on the page. You read it realizing, I don't even know what I just read. <laughs> I read it, but I don't know what I read. I'm going to bed. Busyness is a thief to your fruitfulness because it's good things. There's good things that 
remove you from doing the best things. And of course, the last one I give you is exhaustion. Uh, Elijah is running from Jezebel. He's tired. He's tired to the point where he says, God, just kill me. I want to die. And what does God do? Does God say, yes, you're right. You should die. Let me kill you now. He says, go to bed. (laughs) Really? He puts him to sleep and then he feeds him twice. And then after he meets his physical needs, then God shows up in that still small voice and essentially encourages him. But I want you to notice the first thing God does is he meets his physical needs. Some of you guys, uh, you make spiritual life so spiritual that you neglect the physical. And of course, I just want to throw a bonus one in there for you, indulging in sin. Living, indulging in sin. Sin is death. Sin destroys. Sin never expands uh, your growth. It obviously contracts it. Sin is like a speed bump that whacks you in the face. Sin, if you continue to live in it, will eventually ruin the garden of fruitfulness in your life. Sin is death. Romans 6, you can look that up later. Last verse here. Uh, Paul is closing his letter, the very last verse of Colossians. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. That little verse in there, sentence, remember my chains. Paul's not literally saying, think about these things that I'm wearing. He's saying, pray for me. Remember my suffering on your behalf and pray for me. If you're going to have a a life that remains in Christ after high school, you need strong leaders. You need leaders that are going to lead you well. And one of the best things you can do for them is pray for them. Often and specifically. Often and specifically. I would like for you to write down Hebrews 13, 17. If you come to small groups this week, we're going to discuss all these things more, so please come. I think it'll be helpful to you. But I want you to remember that if you think about your leaders, you have to remember that they're going to give an account to God for how they led you. I, I shudder to think about the fact that I'm going to stand before God and in some way give an account for the fact that I preach this sermon to you. Individual names and faces that I'm looking at right now. I get to talk to God and say, this is why I chose what I did. I did this for this person, for this person. This is how I led them. And he's either going to commend me and give me more rewards or I'm going to lose out on some rewards because I did a poor job. I'm not gonna, it's not about whether or not I'm a Christian. I come before God for you and I'll give an account. Because ultimately, you're a stewardship for your leaders. And by the way, you're called to make my work a joy. <laughs> I know that sounds self-serving, uh, but that's what the text says. I didn't want to skip it. Your job, I mean, if, if you prayed for us, if you prayed for your leaders, especially if you're leaving and you're going to a different place, you go to a different church, pray for your leaders. Pray for them often and specifically. Not only that, because they're going to be judged more strictly than you. For your pastor, he should know the Bible more than you. Please find a pastor who knows the Bible more than you. Uh, and know that because he knows the Bible more than you, he's accountable for more than you. So he's higher standard. He's judged with greater strictness. He's uh, being on, held unaccountable for all of you. I mean, there's so much that you should feel and feel forward that I would love for you to pray for your leaders often. Well, there you have it. Those are the five points. Random names are never random. They represent people that we can and should learn from. And really, young person, if you're off to college after this or some other thing, this is great, a great place for you to start and remember, reflect on. If you're sticking around, this is great for you to start, remember, and reflect on as well. Class of 2020, I love you guys. I'll miss, I'll miss you guys. I'm super grateful for the time that we had together the last six, five, five years together. It's been good. Uh, or maybe less than that for some of you guys that came later. still love you guys. Um, I would encourage you to, as this series suggests, to consider and honor Christ as supreme, not to think of that as being anything less. That's, that's the focus of your life. 
Whether you're a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, this is what it's about. Love, focus, serve Christ. Because really what I really want from, from this and what your leaders want is to be able to say with John, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, this is appropriate on Father's Day, right? My children are walking in the truth. That's what I want more than anything. I don't care if you end up a garbage man. I want you following Christ. I hope you do more than that. But if you do, great. Do it in service to Christ. That's what's, that's what's most valuable. And that's what I would love to hear five years from now, 10 years from now, that you're still following Christ. Please don't be a statistic. I'm going to pray for you guys as we close out with one song from our worship team. It's a song that I chose, and it's important to me, so I would love for you to sing it along as we close out our time.